Welcome to the official Barclays Premier League podcast, brought to you by Barclays. Hello, I'm Dave Farah. This week it's a manager's special. Roberto Martinez tells us about life in the spotlight at Everton. Every football club is different. Obviously, Everton has got an incredible tradition to win the title nine times. You can understand that they are huge expectations and that's something that is very much a part of the football club. Newcastle's Mike Williamson explains why Alan Pardew's the right man for the tune. He likes to come out and get his tactical points across. He is hands-on and he just keeps things basic and simple and you know, that's how football should be played. And Jason Dodd tells us why Mauricio Pochettino is so involved with the youth setup at Southampton. He wants to know what we're doing and he wants to know where their strengths are and where their weaknesses and if they do the work they will get the benefits. Plus we look at Man Managerial changes at the top and bottom. Ask which bosses are getting it right and hear from David Moyes, Arsene Wenger and newest recruit Gus Poyet in our Barclays Premier League podcast, Managers Special. Hello and welcome back to the official Barclays Premier League podcast. This week I'm joined by former West Ham and Charlton manager Alan Kerbishy and the Telegraph's football journalist Jason Burt as well. Um, good to see you both, gents. We're talking managers today, so uh, doubtless you've got plenty to say, Alan. <laughs> well, you know, I've not been a manager for a little while and um, it's interesting just seeing, you know, what's going on and uh, recognising that some managers are going to come under pressure and, uh, you know, some managers doing fantastic jobs. So, yeah, it's an interesting being on the outside. I would imagine sort of being on the outside and the inside of it, Jason, that uh, uh, you've probably met lots of different styles of managers over the years, some maybe a, a little more, a little stronger than others with a journalist, I would have thought. Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, as, as a journalist, uh, one of the big issues for us is the sort of you know, how, how a manager deals with the media. Obviously, we, we don't always see too much behind the scenes. Occasionally, we do, and you get an insight as to how a manager operates. And obviously, there are clear distinctions between different types of managers. Some, some see themselves much more as coaches. Some see themselves as managers and believe that's their main skill. But from our point of view, obviously, with the media, you can see quite clearly sometimes times with some managers, even in the first few, sort of few questions talking to them, whether or not you think it will succeed. Now, there are a couple of examples I could give, but I probably better not go on air with them, of managers I've looked at and, and talked to quite quickly and, and thought straight away, I'm not sure this is going to work. But with a manager, what you want to see really is a clear plan of action. You know, you want to see what his philosophy is and the way he wants to develop the club and the way he wants to develop the team. If he's very clear in what he's saying, even if you don't agree with it, at least you know there's a strong character there who's going to drive the club. Well, on our manager special, as well as having uh, one of England's most experienced former managers in the shape of Alan on our panel. We'll be speaking exclusively to the Everton boss, Roberto Martinez, and Southampton youth coach, uh, Jason Dodd. Plus, Newcastle defender Mike Williamson gives us the player's perspective on managers in the top flight, and he'll help us preview a fixture as well that last finished goalless 39 years ago. More on that later in the show. But uh, we'll start with you, Alan, as the man with experience of all of this. Of course, you've managed in the Barclays Premier League. Um, what do you think the main issues are facing managers in top flight football uh, these days? I think it's the main management of the players firstly you know they've got such fantastic squads stocked up with top players and uh, keeping the players happy if you can say that and uh, in check and also I think with the ownership where there's so many foreign owners coming in trying to educate them is one thing into the club they've got into the culture of the club you know and the expectation level so I think they're the three things at the moment. Would you say, Jason, that in your experience over your career, you've seen the job get a lot harder as, as things have gone on? Yeah, definitely. Obviously, the scrutiny from the media is greater than ever. And I think managers are quickly in crisis nowadays. I think um, two or three games without the right result and suddenly everyone's looking at them very quickly and very closely and examining them. I think Alan's absolutely right on the ownership issue. I think that's been a big thing in the last few years. And I think he had the brunt of it in many ways, the start of it with West Ham, with Eggert Magnussen and coming in talking about Champions League 
League football and qualifying for Europe and trying to run before they could walk almost really and the manager you're trying to sort of temper that sort of ambition expectation with also but also looking ambitious yourself and I think you've got to be realistic but at the same time try and show ambition I think sometimes these owners suddenly think their team will finish in the top four and they just think we will be in the top four we will be a Champions League club and it's not easy it's very difficult because that top four that top five is almost set in stone It's interesting as well Alan that there's the there's a sort of PR job to do in a sense and, and managing expectations but there's also a football team to coach as, as you pointed out as well how much do managers actually coach it does seem to differ doesn't it that uh, some managers you know use really good coaches to go and do that job for them in the main but you know how, how much do managers get out in the training field and well, do that that's an interesting one because I think that era of manager where he just managed and delegated everything else is uh, fast declining the man at the top the Alex Ferguson the Harry Redknapp now one or two others where they manage the club and delegate quite a bit of the coaching the players nowadays want the manager to be the coach and uh, to be totally involved in every aspect of the coaching. You know, maybe delegate it as you're going along, but, you know, the major stuff, the, the things that you're trying to achieve and implement in your squad is done by the manager now, the manager coach. So I think it's going more towards uh, manager coach than, than manager yeah, interesting. We'll talk more about that, I think, as the uh, show goes on. We've spoken a bit about some of the issues facing managers in the Barclays Premier League. Let's talk now to one of those managers, a man who started life superbly at his new club. Welcome to the show, Everton boss Roberto Martinez. And thanks for joining us, Roberto. Pleasure. Now, how have you found your first couple of months in charge at, uh, at Everton? Has it been fun? Well, it's been a real, a real joy, a real joy because everyone at the football club has made the arrival a very welcome one. And we got real good professionals that allows the day-to-day to be a real pleasure. And obviously, with due respect to Wigan, a large increase in fan expectation, I'm sure, as well. Well, every, every football club is different. Obviously, Everton has got a, an incredible tradition as a football club to win the title nine times. You can understand that there are real huge expectations, and that's something that is very much a part of the football club. So very much a different project, but with the same difficulty of trying to win football games in the Barclays Premier League, which is always difficult. Now, you started life, obviously, at Goodison Park very well, seventh in the table, beaten only for the first time last week at Manchester City. Are you surprised at how quickly things have have come together, have gelled, if you like? I wouldn't say surprised. I think we had to work really, really hard in pre-season and we cannot underestimate the strong squad that we have. Remember that the senior figures in the dressing room got terrific experience and very, very much talented than the youngsters that they arrive at the club or the ones that they come through straight away, they, they're just filling a, an important role. So the, the squad becomes very much a, a strong one. But everyone has been really open to try different things and to try to work on different things. And the games program in preseason was vital towards that. So I wouldn't say that we've been overachieving. I just think that everyone has been performing at a good level. We need to carry on improving and carry on developing over the course of the season. Roberto, it's Jason here. Much has Hi. been made of David Moyes going to Manchester United and succeeding to Alex Ferguson. But you succeeded David Moyes, who was obviously at Everton for such a long time. What's it like to take over somebody who's got such a strong personality around the club and you've got to impose your own personality on the club and, and philosophy? I said it many times. Obviously, David Moyes had a fantastic time at Everton. And as a new manager, when you come into a new football club, I prefer that rather than going to a football club that the previous manager didn't leave any platform or any strong foundation at Everton. Every department has been very strong. You can see that the work has been done every season. The football club has been allowed to grow over the years. So the standards are really high and 
maybe you could say that it's a tough job to follow, and it certainly is. But I prefer that sort of challenge rather than going into a football club where nothing has been left in place, that is a, an aging playing squad, that is not much good going on. And even though there are no expectations, the job becomes really, really tough. So what I want to make sure is that everything we do is to add into the good things that they are at this football club and making sure that Everton becomes stronger because of the past that he has question from Twitter now from Craig Callahan who says, Roberto, how good can Ross Barkley become? It's a question I know a lot of us would want to ask as well. He started all seven league games this season, still only 19. He's a sensational talent, isn't he? He is. And I think he can be as good as, as he wants to be because I know his personality and he's a 10 in that respect. There's a real example for everyone at Everton and Eddie, any youngster that he wants to have a big role in the first team. And then you're looking at his talent. Technically, is one of the most gifted footballers at his age that you're going to see, not just in English football, in European football. He's such a, a well-balanced footballer. He can do everything in the same way with the right foot that he, he does with his left foot. And I think the future is really, really uh, exciting for him as you always do in football you need to have that little bit of respect from injuries because if that's the case Ross is going to be someone that he can create history for Everton and for English football in general Yeah, if England make it could you see him having a, a major impact in Brazil is he that good at this age? Well I think it's early to tell and, and obviously that's down to the manager what sort of role he wants to give him or if he wants to give any Ross is still young enough to have a big role and carry on developing in that manner but what I would say is that he's not the sort of player that he gets easily affected by the environment or the occasion. He just enjoys the game. He's got huge standards and nothing faces him. So whatever is going to be asked from him in the England front, he'll be ready for it. And talking of talented young players, Romelu Lukaku, four goals in his first three league matches and also a, an outstanding performance for Belgium uh, against Croatia. I understand you called him straight after that to congratulate him. Well, it's, it's a special talent. What you want in, in strikers is to have that, that little bit of consistency and Romelu has impressed me in that front. Sometimes you get forward players that they rely on very much in their service, in the moment of form. I think Romelu, if anything, it just gives you a, some sort of a performance that he's always got a lot of substance. He's strong, powerful, he can hold the ball and he's really sharp in front of goal. So we want that to carry on and that'll benefit Romelu to develop into the player that he can be. But obviously, while he's at Everton, we're going to get the benefit of enjoying his football. Roberto, when you're at Wigan, you obviously work closely with Dave Whelan, who's a very strong personality. You've got another strong personality in Bill Kenwright. What's, what's your relationship like with him and how's, how's he been with, with you so far? Well, I've been very impressed since day one. I always said that the manager's success is as big as the support that you get from your chairman. And I've been very fortunate, as you mentioned, Dave Willen and, and Bill Kenwright for me uh, to prototypes of how a chairman should be in the top level. People that they love the football club, they love what the, the clubs represent, and they're there for the right reasons. With Dave Willem, we had a really strong relationship of mutual respect. I must say that in a very short period of time, we developed that with Bill Kenwright. I've got huge admiration for what he stands for, what he's done for the football club over the years, something that I wasn't too aware. It's someone that he gives you that support and understanding, which allows football clubs to be successful. So I've been extremely impressed so far. Just a couple of final questions, Roberto. Today's theme, if you like, of our show is, is football management and managers. Um, how much advice do you seek from, from other managers, maybe those with more experience than you? That's always a, a very good question. 
It's very, very difficult for someone to give you advice in football because every decision is based in a completely different situation. There is never a decision that is made in the same way. So I always get a lot of joy of seeing other managers working and, and other managers dealing with situations. But it's very much of making your own decision because you're the only one that's got the full information and the full picture in every football situation. But it is true that in football is nothing new, that everything happens over the years. And I always get real joy of seeing previous managers, how they enjoyed successful periods in their clubs. And just finally, if you could thank one person in football as, a, as an influence on you as a manager, who do you think that would be? Well, it would be easy for me. I think a lot of people that you face in your career and a lot of people that they make you the professional that you are through the experiences you had. But I think the person that started me in this profession, in this life, is my dad. And obviously he said such a strong values and such a strong passion. He told me very much from the beginning that football wasn't a job, that anyone that he takes football as a job is just a short period that you're going to be lasting there. It's a way of living. It's something that it should take everything in your life. And that clearly set me in, a, in the right path. Roberto, thank you very much indeed for your time and good luck as well for the weekend and the rest of the season. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you. Yeah, he's very, very impressive. Uh, Great to hear from Roberto uh, Martinez as well. Incidentally, before we go on, Alan, uh, we're asking all of our guests about who they'd thank most in in football, the person who's helped them most. Uh, Who would that be for you? Well, I think as a player, it would have been uh, Ron Greenwood and uh, John Lyle at West Ham because the upbringing that we all got. And I always remember Ron Greenwood and, you know, especially saying that, you know, if you don't if you don't end up playing for us, you'll end up playing somewhere else. We're going to make you a player and uh, you'll be able to fit in anywhere else, you know, basically because of the education that you was getting. So I only had a brief spell with uh, Ron Saunders when he left Aston Villa and come to Birmingham. And, uh, you know, I, I then realised winning football, if you like, um, the whole week was geared up to that weekend and um, the way he conducted himself, you could see why Aston Villa had so much success. Straight away, I sort of took on board the things that he was uh, trying to do and trying to achieve. And if you're asking me about a manager having an influence, I think it would be him. Yeah, and uh, Roberto Martinez, it was interesting to hear him talk there, Jason, about the very single-minded. He's a he's a great talker and uh, incredibly pleasant person, but very, very single-minded. I'm doing it my own way. And you were listening intently to that. He started well, hasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, it was interesting. He got relegated from the Barclays Premier League at the end of last season with Wigan, won the FA Cup, but he, he got a job back in the Barclays Premier League. It was interesting that Everton took him because I think there must have been a little bit of a wobble around the time of the, the relegation. They might have thought, can we actually do this? Can we bring in a manager who's been relegated? What, what, how will that play with the supporters? And I think because he is so positive, because he is so optimistic, because he is so organised and he's very clear in what he wants to do, I think that helps create the right atmosphere straight away. And it's interesting, even talking to him last season when things weren't going well at Wigan, he still radiated that positivity. Now, some people took the mickey out of that a little bit, but I quite liked it. I quite liked the fact that he talked in that way. And I think he, that reflected a little bit in his team and the way he got Wigan playing because okay they were relegated last season but still played some very very good football at times well coming up we'll be discussing the hardest manager's job in European football and we'll find out how Gareth Bale became the most expensive player in the world you're listening to the official Barclays Premier League podcast with Dave Farrer Well, this season's seen the biggest upheaval of any Barclays Premier League season in recent history. Three of the top four sides replacing their manager in the summer. Chelsea brought back Jose Mourinho. Manchester City installed Manuel Pellegrini, while Manchester United replaced their manager for the first time in 27 years. So let's focus on United's David Moyes, who has had the unenviable task of replacing Sir Alex Ferguson. Well, anybody who comes into a new job, you learn as you get on. You learn things as you go. I'm doing that as well. But uh, I already knew that I was coming with a group of really good players. 
but it will also have difficult times as well. I think it's a good club, Manchester United. I'm sure they, they know they picked the right man for the job and uh, you know, Sir Alex was part of that process as well. Long season. You know, you've seen great changes as the, the season goes on, so we'll hang in there and get ourselves as close to the top as soon as we can. So, Alan, is he the right man for the job? Well, I think he is because I think they had two choices uh, to go with a big name, if you like. I don't really want to say that, but, you know, a Mourinho, a Pellegrini, who would come in and instantly shake it up, I think, and uh, perhaps make drastic changes. Or you go with someone who I refer to in house a little bit because I think just what he did last week uh, at Sunderland with Yanisai, he played an 18-year-old in mm. a really big game for him. Because if he'd have lost at Sunderland, David Moyes would have been under real pressure because of the results. But he went with a young lad when he had Valencia on the bench, he had Welbeck on the bench, Hernandez, etc. But he went with an 18-year-old because I think that's what Man United do. And I think that was a major part of David's brief in going into Man United, that he would carry on that work that Alex believed in. So I think it went a little bit unnoticed because he scored the two goals and everyone was ranting and raving about him and what countries he's going to play for. I think uh, it went unnoticed that he played him instead of some senior players and at one look down at half-time where he could have gone, like, you're off, you're off, he stuck with it and the, you know he got the reward. So he is the right man for the job for all sorts of reasons and I just hope that the results pick up and pressure's off him a little bit. I think it's very important also that he got the job uh, for British managers and British coaches because there was getting, we're getting to a point in, in, in this country in which all the top jobs were really going to go abroad and I think that Manchester United made a very conscious decision to choose David Moyes partly because of what Alan says and that, that sort of commitment to the type of management he is and, uh, bringing through young players and, and he made a point of that himself. He talked to us about that in the summer quite a lot, how important it is at Manchester. I think it's the 1930s is the last time they didn't have a youth player coming through into the first team at Manchester. And they wear that as a badge of honour now at the club. And it's something Sir Alex Ferguson was very, very strong on. And David Moyes was very strong on that at Everton as well. And he's brought that on at Manchester United. My only complaint about David Moyes, I think he's been too polite to everyone. I think he needs to make his own mark a little bit more at times. I think he's been very deferential and very polite and very accommodating to everyone, including the media. And we're always asking him, saying, oh, it's your first time doing this and your first time doing that. And, your and he answers the question, you can see, I think he needs to get a bit more irritated at times. And I'd like to see a little bit more of his, his own character coming through because it's there. And we, we, it's a steely character. And I think we need to see a bit more of him coming through. Just to emphasise that point a bit more, I, I couldn't imagine Mourinho at the moment or Pellegrini putting an 18 year old in and giving him his day. Mourinho would send him out on loan. <laughs> <laughs> in a proper game, you know, when you're under a little bit of pressure. As Jason's saying, that's, that's another reason why David Moyes is in charge. Yeah, Yannis yeah, like a very interesting character, obviously. I think David uh, took him on the pre season tour and gave him his opportunity then. He said to us a few weeks ago that he wanted to put him into the first team and he just couldn't just the opportunity didn't arise and that was a very very big call putting him in against Sunderland a very very big call I was at that game and you could feel the atmosphere beforehand was a little bit tense weren't quite sure which way it was going to go and the first half wasn't the greatest performance from United and then you, you know he turned it for them and I think that's a real sort of statement from the manager and also from from the club as well and they talk about big signings coming in and spending money but sometimes you've got to give what you've got a chance and I think there's a real there's a player there and, always, and he'll be nurtured in the right way because we know David Moyes won't just throw him in every game he'll bring him out and put him back in the squad and he'll develop in the right way and I think it's a real sign that you know that there is some very promising future there if you want a sign of what David Moyes is up against, uh, by the way, uh, Sir Alex Ferguson was awarded the Honorary Freedom of the Borough of Trafford this week and had a street <laughs> named after him as well, Sir Alex Ferguson Way. So in terms of following the legend, it's there all around.
and uh, David Moyes. Adnan Yanisai, by the way, just one of several youngsters, of course, Manchester United have been able to boast about in recent years, as Jason was saying. But another team doing wonders with their teenagers is Southampton. Theo Walcott, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain and the world's most expensive player, Gareth Bale, all products of that Southampton Academy. And we're joined now by their under-18 youth coach, Saints legend, uh, Jason Dodd. Hi, Jason. Hi, Dave. So put simply, what's the secret to your success there? How does the academy work so well? I think a lot of it is down to hard work. We got a fantastic coaching setup from the under nines right the way up to the first team. We work really well together, and I think we're quite lucky. We have a lot of our boys that have been with us a long, long time. So we've got James, Callum, and Luke who are in the first team at the moment. I think they've been with us since they've been 10 or 11. So they buy into the so-called Southampton way very early, and it seems to have success. Yeah, the Southampton way is interesting because the players you produce, the ones that we know about that get through the highest level, all seem like very well-rounded individuals. Is that something the academy really prides itself on, as well as the footballing talent? about making them good young lads, good young pros. Um, that is the, the key to, I think, if they buy into what we do, it certainly makes it a lot easier because they know there's a pathway to get through to the first team. So they know if they do the work that we ask them to do. And it's not just on the football field. I mean, we've got a fantastic education program at the Julian Toby sort out. At the moment, we've got Ify and all in from the PFA doing the, the level two coaching badges. So we want them to make professional players. But also, there's, there's a lot of other factors into it that makes them into good young men and at the moment really good pros Jason at some clubs there's quite a big gap between the first team and the, the reserves and, everything, and then the youth set up what, what's it like at Southampton I, I, I imagine it's probably completely different that you're much more joined up and the, the head coach takes quite an interest in the young players coming through that helps us I mean with the international break at the moment we've got the development the 21s and the 18s well because it's a smaller group now the manager likes to get some of the younger players involved so it gets our young boys in and around the first team we had 11-11 last Thursday against the first team they had like 60 minutes, which was probably a 90-minute game for them. And it gets them to understand, if they want to get into our first team, this is what they have to do. And we, we're very lucky as well that we got some fantastic pros that take the young boys under their wings. We make sure that if I've got a, a young fullback, they're doing one of the first-team fullbacks at Boots. So it means that they can have a little interaction with those players. And if there's any questions that they can ask or any other senior players, we'll give them advice. You know that it's in their position that they're quite comfortable with so that seems to work for us and again I do think we have got a fantastic set of pros that they do take an interest in the young kids as well and they can see with the likes of Luke James and Callum coming through and playing regularly in the first team that there might be some new players younger players coming through as well How difficult is it Jason for players to make that step from the academy to the first team it's one of those things that I think fans find fascinating the difference in levels that, that little leap how tough is that? Well we speak to the players and that when they go up there and I, I see what our first team do we try and replicate sessions albeit it's not going to be the same intensity you'll get when we're your first team but they're comfortable when they do step up and they're involved in some of the first team sessions so they're comfortable uh, and they know what the sessions are about and what the themes are and what they want to get out of it so it's not more or less being jumped straight up there and it's like oh my god what am I supposed to be doing to be fair at the moment the lads that have stepped up have taken them challenges on board and, and are becoming very very good pros at the moment and you've got almost the perfect manager, haven't you, in terms of the first team manager, Mauricio Pochettino, to bring youngsters through. This is someone who, who seems to value the work that you do, who wants to use these young players, who wants to hear about them. He a, he's a, must be a great fella to, to liaise with. Well, like I said, he asks questions. He, he wants to know what we're doing and he, and he wants to know where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are. And, and really, that's encouraging for us because it makes it easy for us for the players. We put the session on. If they do the work, if they do what is required, 
they will get the benefits. And the benefits for them at the moment, some of these players are 16, 17, 18-year-olds, they will have an opportunity to be in and around the first team. If you're not going to get up for training, if you're not getting up to working hard, then realistically, you're not at the right club. This is what we're about. The quicker they buy into it, they know that there's an opportunity for them to be up around the development group. And then if they are doing fantastically well, then they, the manager will get them involved around them. Is there a, is there a, a quota or a, a certain number of players you've got to try and bring through into the first team squad? And is, is the dream ultimately to have almost a, a self-sustaining idea of everyone coming through? Well, I think Nicola, he wants 50% of our first team to come through the academy. Don't get me wrong, that's a tough ask. But then again, why not? At the end of the day, we've, we've got a, three of them playing regularly in the first team. The development group have got players that have had some experience in the Carlin Cup. Um, and the vast majority of them have been in and around the first team in training. So we've set a tough target, don't get me wrong. But why not? Why can't we strive to achieve that? And, and it makes it easier because these young players know that there is a pathway. So if they are good enough, and if they put the work in, there will be an opportunity along the line that they get the chance. And it just means we've got to work hard harder now to keep producing players to go into the first team. Should Saints fans be excited about the next generation that's coming through in three or four years? I would hope so. I mean, like I said, we've got a great coaching effort at our place. We work really closely together. We know the age groups below. We know what the players need to work at. We know their strengths and their weaknesses. So that, that's a focus. So we know about the good ones. We know about the ones where we can put some work in to produce. So we all work together. And I think that's why we're producing players at the moment. But who knows? Who knows whether these boys are going to be good enough? All we can do is continually put what we think is correct into place. And then hopefully these players will flourish. And just finally, Jason, we're asking everyone on the show today uh, the same question. If you could thank one person in football over the years, someone who's you know helped you along, um, who who would that be? Does anyone spring instantly to mind? Well, I was very, I've had some great managers that I've worked with. Obviously, one of my first ones was when I, I came down from Bath. I worked with Dave Merrington. He was the under-18s manager. Then, then he had a season being the manager of the first team. So they just installed things that I try and install into our young players. That they become good young men. I think if they become good men, all the traits that you put into them on the training ground and off the training ground come into play. If, and there is a vast percentage of it, that some of these players will not make it, that they will be successful wherever they go. So it might not be in football they make a success but if you put them and round them into good young men that they make a success somewhere else be it non-league or another job that they have to go into so they've installed those things into me and I must say I've, I've carried a few of them on and, and I work really closely with Paul Williams me and him work together and, and he's had some fantastic managers as well so we've taken all the good bits from all of the great managers we've worked with and we try and gel these players into good young men Jason thank you so much uh, for your time uh, really great to, uh, to talk to you good luck for the rest of the season mate thank you very much Alan, what a job they do down there. A player after player, uh, you know, not just the megastars, but high-class players beneath them as well. Yeah, and, and my old assistant, Les Reed, is there, who's uh, on the board and um, overseeing recruitment for the academy, etc. And um, I think that when you have something like this happening at a football club, it's obviously got to come from the top, that, you know, they're going to invest in it, they're going to not just fund it, but they're going to promote it and put players in their first team. So, you know, when you look at Southampton, they've spent heavily in the last couple of seasons generally on foreign players but there's that nucleus of homegrown talent and you know that homegrown talent is the one that the fans have an affinity with you can't underestimate that you know when I was at West Ham I put Mark Noble in when we stayed up that year you know the Tevez goal etc but the biggest selling shirt of the club was Mark Noble not Tevez because the fans you know had an affinity with the homegrown talent so you know what Southampton are doing I, I hope other clubs take notice of it because you know, there's lots of talk at the moment about the lack of English players, etc., and what that leads to. 
we've got an example there of a club. Unfortunately, they've had to sell, but perhaps they haven't got to sell this lot. Now, when they sold, you know, those fear and administration, etc., and, you know, those under financial pressure, they're not at the moment. So hopefully when the bids come in for some of these young players, they can resist it and they stay at Southampton. And what's also good as well, it's not just a sporting model in terms of bringing in these young players and obviously bringing them through into the first team and Jason Dodd talking about 50%, which I think is an incredible figure to try and think ultimately that'll be the end. But also it's a business model as well. And I think Nicola Cattesi, the, the chairman there, is very clear, very hard-headed businessman. He sees this as a, is, is a way of actually making the club more self-sustainable so they don't have to keep spending 50 million million pounds on people like Osvaldo. Next time, hopefully, in a few years' time, they'll have their own strikers coming through. And maybe eventually they'll have to sell that striker or want to sell that striker, but do it under their own terms. A self-sustaining business model makes sense completely for a club like Southampton if they want to compete. Send us your thoughts, by the way, on the Southampton Academy by tweeting us using the hashtag YouAreFootball. So while Mauricio Pochettino is creating a young and exciting team on England's south coast, is a much more familiar manager doing something comparable at Chelsea. Jose Mourinho returned to the bridge in the summer for his second spell at the club. A different Mourinho that we're witnessing, do you think, Alan, with this younger Chelsea, De Bruyne, Hazard, Oscar, Van Hinkle, Schürrle and co? He came in and said he was the happy one instead of the special one when he came last time into the Barclays Premier League. After a couple of weeks, I thought he was more the contented one. You know, and that aggression and the way he conducted his press interviews were long gone. But I don't think we saw this as a change. We saw this as... You know, he's already been there. Uh, the way he wants to go about it is a little bit different to what he did, what, six or seven years ago before he left. And he's got a different side. You know, the one thing that is missing from the Chelsea team at the moment is is these seven or eight untouchables. He hasn't got that now. He's got to try and find that. And that's his problem, I think. He's trying to find his best team while he's trying to win football matches. We'll hear from Jason in a second, but let's hear first from Jose Mourinho, who's explained how he's changed his tactics from his last spell in charge. We have to play the ball on the floor. We have to play the ball with short depth movements, not the long diagonals uh, that we, we, we used to do in my previous time here. And Chelsea kept that philosophy for many for many years. A philosophy that gave titles, a philosophy that was adapted to the profile of the players. And in this moment, the profile is a complete different profile, so we cannot play the same way they were used to, to play. So is this team noticeably different, Jason, from the last time he was there? Yes, it is, absolutely. It's a different collection of players, a collection of players who weren't bought for Jose Mourinho. They were bought for Pep Guardiola, and Jose Mourinho has inherited them, and he's had to work with them and trying to develop them, and also at the same time sort of temper his own way. One thing he's done very interestingly with the media is he, I'm not sure how long this will last, but he's giving his very, very, very long press briefings at the moment. So if we ask him about Juan Mata or Kevin De Bruyne, he's giving his very full answers, and that says to me there's somebody there who's trying to explain to everyone what's going on at the club and I think that's very healthy that he's trying to do that at this stage how long it lasts I don't know if he feels the team becomes a little less competitive and maybe slips down the league I can't help feeling the old Jose will come back out again and Alan please try and answer this before we move (laughs) on to Manchester City Jason talks about Jose Mourinho explaining things and so on the question that pretty much every Barclays Premier League fan is asking why oh why oh why did he loan out Lukaku was it the right thing to do or is it going to cost them the title well I think that uh, they were trying to loan out Denver Bar wasn't they and I think if Denver Bar would have gone, then obviously Lukaku wouldn't have. But you've got to look at Lukaku's situation. He may have gone into Mourinho and said, look, if I'm not going to get any football here as much, I won't go to the World Cup. And I do believe for a long while they felt they were going to sign someone. Once Denver Bar didn't go, they signed Eto because they probably committed to Eto. But Torres, Eto, Denver Bar, where does Lukaku fit in? And if he does, then he's going to have two very unhappy centre forwards on the sidelines. So I understand Mourinho's problem with that because once a player's been out on loan like Lukaku did last year, he don't want to be sitting on the bench anymore. And that is a big problem. You let players go out on loan, which 
which is great for their education. When they come back, they don't want to be on the bench anymore. They want to be playing. The third managerial change that we mentioned, uh, Manuel Pellegrini to Manchester City, known as the engineer, someone who's had great success, firstly with Villarreal, with Malaga, had a spell at Real Madrid too. Is his management style going to engineer a trophy for City, do you think, Jason? Yeah, I think I think it's very interesting that they chose Manuel Pellegrini ahead of somebody again like Jose Mourinho. Manchester City talked about this holistic approach, which a lot of people derided, but I, I sort of know where they're coming from. They, they're spending an awful lot of money at the club, both within the infrastructure and also in the first team. And they just want, to, they want a little bit more in terms of the development of that club. Now, Mancini brought them success, but they obviously felt they couldn't go much further with him. They wanted a different source of manager. And I think that they have invested very heavily this summer again with the forward players they brought in. I think it's the strongest squad in the league. They should really be doing a bit better than they are at the moment, but I think they will come good. I think Pellegrini is a very good coach. And again, we're in that sort of quick fix mode of people are sort of being quite critical of him, but he's not been there that long. So I think it needs to develop a little bit longer to see where it's, where it's heading. Well, coming up, we'll be asking what role an assistant manager plays in the success of a top Barclays Premier League club and getting a player's perspective on his manager when we speak exclusively to Newcastle's defender, Mike Williamson. But it's time now for our halftime tweets. Well, during the international break, the Barclays Premier League tweeters have been out in force. Aaron Ramsey said after Wales's win over Macedonia, great win for Craig Bellamy's last home game, delighted to get man of the match. While Cardiff striker Craig Bellamy's international career came to an end, teammate Declan Johns has just begun. Buzzing to make my debut tonight, really enjoyed it, and most importantly, we got the win. The Republic of Ireland, of course, didn't manage to win in Germany, but Everton's Seamus Coleman captained them on his birthday, and teammate Shane Duffy tweeted, so proud and buzzing for Shane It'll mean so much to him. He deserves it more than anyone I know. Everton sensation Romelu Lukaku scored twice against Croatia to fire Belgium to Brazil. Man City's Vincent Company was delighted. Football's about big moments and achievements. I'm proud of my country and I'm proud of our team. Let's improve and be the best. And maybe the proudest man of all was Sir Alex Ferguson, who's had a street outside Old Trafford named after him, as we've told you. Reds fan Abhishek tweeted, Fergie gave so much to Manchester United. He's always in our hearts. Hashtag you are football. And remember, you can keep up to date with everything that's going on in the Barclays Premier League by following at Barclays Footy on Twitter, hashtag YouAreFootball. Welcome back to our Barclays Premier League podcast managers special. Alongside me is uh, former West Ham and Charlton manager Alan Kirbishley and the Telegraph football journalist Jason Burt, both of whom, of course, are buzzing at the level of the uh, conversation. We've just spoken to Everton manager Roberto Martinez and Southampton's academy director Jason Dodd. But I wondered, Alan, about the assistant manager's role. We don't often hear from them, do we? But you've had some real good lieutenants over the years. Yeah, as I said, I mentioned uh, Les Reed when I first uh, took over Charlton on my own. He came in as my assistant and then he left and went back to the to the FA and uh, Mervyn Day came in and uh, was with me for a long while until, until I left West Ham. Obviously, they don't get the media spotlight. You see them on the touchline when the camera's trained on the dugout and they're normally offering advice, etc. But, you know, they don't get the profile. They don't get a chance too often to speak. So they go quietly unnoticed. How much is their job to challenge you? That's a major part of it. I did ask and I was open to whatever suggestions my coaching staff had. You know, you have to be because you can't see everything that's going on. They are a little bit closer to the players in terms of day-to-day chat and their personal lives and what's going on, etc. 
What a lot of people see assistant managers or first team coaches as is um, a buffer between you and the players. And perhaps a player will go to an assistant coach and go, I've got to go and see the manager about this, I've got to go and see the manager about that. And he might say, well, hold on, bide your time. I don't think this is the right time, etc. I think a lot of people think that uh, an assistant manager or first team coach is the good guy and the manager's the bad guy. It's not that way, really. But no, they're very important. You know, not just with the players. But with sporting directors and, and, and owners, uh, you know, they can intercept a problem where it's better off coming from them than perhaps coming from the manager. And Jason Best, number two in the Barclays Premier League history. Not maybe the most distinguished title, but still a very important one. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, it can be a very crucial role. I mean, I've been racking my brains thinking about it. Pakis Derian at Liverpool, when he, when he was there, Liverpool seemed to be a different beast under Benitez. And when, when he went, Benitez didn't seem to be quite the same. But I, I would have to choose Carlos Quiros, I think, at Manchester United, because obviously he was there twice. And twice you could see his effect at the club, not, not least with obviously Cristiano Ronaldo. But the way he organised them, the way he modernised them as well in terms of the training and their approach. Obviously, he went on to become a manager himself, not not with any great success, but I would say him. And also that you know, Alex Ferguson was fantastic at bringing in people he needed at the right time to innovate and revolutionise and move on his club. And that became his great gift in many ways, was that ability to realise that he needed to bring in ideas around him and to be almost a sponge and get those ideas and, and use that as a way of innovating. And the older he got, the more he was open to that in many ways. We talk about clubs at a sort of rarefied level. We should have a chat about the promoted clubs as well. Cardiff City have had a fortnight of change in their first Barclays Premier League season. Malky Mackay has retained his position as manager after a lengthy meeting with the club's board this week, but only after his head of recruitment was replaced by the Malaysian owner, Vincent Tan. We spoke to Mackay on this show a few weeks ago and we asked him if he's had time to enjoy and learn from the experience of being in the top flight. Certainly enjoy it and learn. Um, I'm, I'm constantly phoning other Premier League managers that I, that I know well for bits and pieces of information just to talk to them and keep trying to pick things up. Um, as far as time to enjoj it, not sure about that. Um, I love what I do and I, I'm relishing this task, but it's pretty full on and there's a lot of work behind the scenes in terms of dealing with our Malaysian owners as well. Well, a tough period for Cardiff after a decent start to the season. They've won two and drawn two of their uh, seven matches, but it, it is difficult for you, Alan, when changes are forced on you. Well, that's what I said at the start of this programme, handling the owners. They come into the Bartlett's Premier League, they buy their football club and they've got their own views on things. And I think what Malky said there about dealing with them, educating them, is a big part of it now. And uh, I should imagine Martin Yole's got that at Fulham. You know, a new owner takes over in the summer. He's going with the previous manager. There's lots of speculation around that the new owner at some stage will want his own man in and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you can understand how difficult it is uh, being a Bartlett's Premier League manager at the moment. And what happened at Cardiff? Cardiff last week just sums it up really they've had a decent start and uh, something like this has just put so much pressure on Malky Mackay destabilised him a little bit and he didn't need it the owner for, for whatever reason decides he's going to make a change and it undermines the manager so people then start thinking well is he in charge or not of the football side and that's the most important thing well Cardiff sit in 14th spot in the league after a mixed start to the season it's been contrasting fortunes for the other two promoted clubs Hull City are in 8th while Crystal Palace's solitary win leaves them 2nd from bottom we can hear from both managers now Steve Bruce in a moment but first Ian Holloway you've got to show strength and character and you know you get so much written about you so much said about you and you know at the end of the day there's a lot of games left there's a lot of points to add I just want to be a slow burner this time and try and get better and better and better and better and with this group the way they can defend them very very optimistic to say the least got a long winter to face and some difficult challenges ahead and also some really really good football teams are going to come here but we're making a fist of it at the moment holding our own long may continue 
Well, Jason, two very different jobs right now. Steve Bruce has done remarkably well on, on his return, and uh, it's difficult for Holloway, isn't it? Yeah, it is very difficult for Ian Holloway. I think the, the problem with Crystal Palace is obviously they clearly were not a team equipped to deal with the Barclays Premier League when they got promoted. And they had a bit of a trolley dash, didn't they, at the end of the transfer window, and they brought in a lot of players, but did they bring in enough good players? I mean, I, I think Palace are slightly sort of a special case in many ways, and I think they should be prepared to be bottom of this league and go back down. And I think they should stick with Ian Holloway, come what may because there's a plan there at the club to redevelop the club and, and rebuild the club and the stadium and so on. I think he deserves that opportunity. We talk sometimes about how managers maybe have, maybe they need to be moved on and so on, even be ruthless with them. But I think this is a special case in some ways for me because of, they would not be where they are without him. And I think if he's still got the stomach for the fight, even if they finish bottom, they should carry on with him because of the job he's done. I think that they perhaps bought too many players in August, changed the team too much. I can see why they did it because it just was not equipped to deal with this league. Well, this weekend welcomes the Barclays Premier League's newest manager who's got similar issues uh, with Uruguayan Gus Poyet taking charge of his first Sunderland match at Swansea having replaced Paolo Di Canio last week. The former Brighton boss is upbeat about the challenge ahead despite his new club sitting bottom of the league. I'm confident. I'm a positive person. I don't like to talk in advance. It's too easy to talk now. Yeah, I'm going to do this and that. I want to prove it. I want to show you. When you're at the bottom and in the situation that we are, everyone will say it's going to be very difficult. The idea here is to believe, to be convinced. From what I see, from what I've been checking, I do believe that, that we can get saved. Now I need to convince the players, I need to convince everybody, I need to make sure that we, we understand all players, staff, fans, club, directors, that you know, we need to really believe in this uh, opportunity that we, we start today. So uh, it's possible. Alan, you've been there. You've saved teams from, from relegation as well as obviously operating higher up the table. What does he need to do now? Firstly, um, galvanise the players. And after looking at what he's got, which is very difficult because he's had a two-week international break. So some of these players may have gone off. But try and pick his team and, and try and implement what he wants and stick with it. Because I think there's been so much change at Sunderland. What the players really need now is a bit of security. that This is what we're doing. This is the way we're going about it. But obviously, results dictate that as well. So I think he's got a very difficult job I must admit I think over the years as I said earlier looking at managerial changes I've been going with more experience I think that that was the best way forward when there was a managerial change go with experience but then Pochettino and Laudrup came into the Barclays Premier League never been in it before and were successful so started to change my thoughts a little bit And but I do think that this one at Sunderland they need or needed a bit more experience so I'd be interested to see how this one goes I think the difference with Pochettino and Laudrup is they went into clubs who were much more stable than mm. Sunderland's environment I think Obviously, Sunderland have got a, a new sporting director there in Roberto Di Fanti, who's obviously brought in a lot of players over the summer. And I think they reached a point in the summer when you thought, how many players are they going to bring in here? And how is this possibly all going to gel straight away? And, you know, unfortunately, one of the, one of the tasks of being a journalist, you have to do your predictions at the start of the season. And I, and I predicted Sunderland to go down because I think there was just too much change going on there. I thought they might have stuck with Paolo Di Canio for a bit longer because he's their man and they've brought him in and, and the director of football and everything. But obviously, it just wasn't working. I think Poy is interesting because he was just desperate to work in the Barclays Premier League absolutely desperate and he left Brighton and so on he wanted to go to Reading at one stage that didn't happen he's obviously gone to Sunderland so he's a man on a mission so hopefully he'll galvanise them but you've got two different squads of players there and you've got to make a decision does he go with what the sort of rump of what was left over from that British that core that Kevin Ball brought back in or do you bring in these young these new players I think there's a couple in there like Jacarini who is a, is a superb player who he'll bring in but I, I wouldn't be surprised if you see him ended up playing quite a lot of the, the sort of players who've been there a while like 
Catamol and so on. I've got to ask you, because you dropped it in, predictions at the start of the season. Who did you tip as the winners, by the way? Manchester City, because okay. of the strength of the squad. Still confident? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see come the end of the season. Um, but from the newest manager in the top flight to a man who's, of course, outlasted them all. Last weekend, Arsene Wenger celebrated the 17th anniversary of his first game in charge of Arsenal, and his club currently sits top of the Barclays Premier League. The French boss has explained in brief his secrets of management. In this job is, uh, of course, very important that you keep focus, purpose and the desire to improve. Let's, let's focus on that. So early in the season, Premier League has shown last year that uh, you can draw points everywhere and uh, that's the case again this season. Is it proof that longevity works, Alan, that uh, you should always give people time? Well, it is interesting, the fact that at the start of the season we had managerial changes at the top, the three other clubs. And the one club that didn't change is the most successful at the moment. Listen, we're never going to see another Arsene Wenger. 17 years, uh, you're not going to get a manager doing 17 years in the Barclays Premier League. You're not going to get a manager doing 10, I don't think. And I think the managers are taking short-term views on it, that they come in, they sign a three-year contract or four-year contract, but they know that uh, you know, the average tenure is about 18 months. And if you're not successful, it'd be shorter than that. So I think Arsene Wenger has earned the right at his football club. I spoke earlier about David Moyes putting young players in. He's earned the right to spend £42 million on Ozil and he's earned the right to put Nabry in because he's been there so long uh, and the fans who were getting very upset and emotional and uh, telling him that he didn't know what he was doing uh, at the start of the season, his longevity gives him the right to do what he's doing. What's he brought to English football since his time here, Jason? Has he changed English football? Yeah, definitely. I think, obviously, we're talking 17 years ago. I mean, when he first arrived, some of his ideas were completely innovative, hadn't been carried out in, in this country before. He was very strong on conditioning of players, sports medical science and so on. I think, to a certain extent, to be quite honest, I think he got left behind a little bit. I think everyone caught him up. I think that was, that was the problem more than anything else. Not just in terms of the way, obviously, he, he uh, uh, trained the players, but also in terms of the transfer market as well, because he, he was very quick to exploit the, the French market and other markets and he was very good at bringing in these players young players who people hadn't really heard very much of that doesn't really happen anymore because the rest of the Barclays Premier League has caught up the rest of the world has caught up and there are very few players out there who you can get for value for money I think what's been very important this summer for, for Arsenal is, is buying Mesut Ozil we've been talking about this for such a long time I think that was a real important signing for them because it just lifted everyone around the club and I think it's something that Wenger if he's quite honest about it resisted for a while spending that amount of money he was obviously in this sort of mission this crusade to obviously be sustainable and not spend spend huge amounts of money. They've done it from their own resources and I think he has been the real key to them. I think what might happen, unfortunately, for them is they might get caught short because the rest of the squad, although there's a very, very strong first team, have they got depth in the squad? He's, he's lacking another striker, for example. 2005, Arsenal fans don't need reminding was their last trophy. Mm. It, could this be the year that they finally break that drought? Well, I think he, he needs to. If it's not the, the Barclays Premier League, then it's got to be a domestic cup. No other manager would have stayed at a top four club without winning anything for eight years. Alex wouldn't have stayed at Man United, nor would anybody else if they're in the top four. He's got to win something this year, and I think he knows that. I think that he resisted spending that money, big money, because of the pressures it brought. When you spend eight and nine million and it doesn't work, like Jovino, etc., the guy disappears and you forget about it. But what I think he's managed to do is make his club more attractive. Now, if they are successful this year, with a player like Ozil in the squad, he will attract other players. And that is the biggest statement he made. And hey, Jovino's currently setting Italian football alight at Roma, so you know, go yeah. figure. It just shows that sometimes you can be at the right club under the right manager. Um, the longest-serving manager in the Barclays Premier League behind Arsene Wenger. It's not something everyone would get right, necessarily, but it's Newcastle United's Alan Pardew, who's been at the helm for a massive total of almost three years. And the club had an interesting summer in terms of backroom staff. Joe Kinnear was appointed director of football by chairman uh, 
Mike Ashley. Um, it's a bit of a loaded question, Jason, but what exactly is the director of football role? Is it working there, do you think? Well, with Newcastle, I think, I think the mistake they've made there is actually calling him director of football because quite clearly he's not the director of football. He's actually the owner's mate who is there to sort of basically be his eyes and ears and to sort of report back to him, which, which is fine, by the way, if that's what they want. That's absolutely fine. But don't dress it up as a director of football. And I think clearly he's not, he's not a director of football. He's not out there looking and scouting players and trying to sign players and producing dossiers of information to pass on to the manager, the sorts of players that get to strengthen their positions that they need. They've got that in Graham Carr and the chief scout, actually. And I think it seems to me that Kinnear was brought in to basically act almost like a little bit of buffer for the, for the owner between the manager and the owner and to maybe report to the owner about what, what he feels, how things are going at the club. And does it work for you, Alan? Have you ever, have you ever worked with one, by the way, with a, a director of football or similar? <laughs> well, that was my falling out of West Ham a little bit. But uh, listen, there's a role there if it's done properly, as Jason just said. The foreign manager accepts it much more easily. Uh, he knows that's part of the regime, if you like, that there's a football director. And the role that that director plays, we keep talking about a buffer, but it's the gathering of information on players, etc., presented to the manager. The manager makes his decision on two or three uh, of them players. Then the football director goes out and actually tries to sign them. But you've got to be on the same wavelength. And, and that's the biggest problem, I think, for the English manager especially, or the British manager, you've seen it at Cardiff last week. There is a role there, but it has to be someone the manager knows or respects because if that's not there and that guy is making the football decisions then the manager becomes undermined and you know obsolete he's going to be hired and fired on these results but he's not had anything to do with the players that are coming in playing for him so you know the foreign the foreign coach accepts it much more easily than the British one well to get a bit more insight into the relationship between manager and player rather than director and football and manager and player and to discuss Newcastle's start to the season uh, we're joined by defender Mike Williamson hi Mike Hi there. Now, you played in the 2-1 win at Cardiff last time out. Um, how crucial is it to go into that international break on a, on a positive note like that, if you can? Yeah, I think uh, it was crucial. Um, I think off the back of our last two results as well, it made all the more uh, important to get the three points. I think, like you say, you go into the international break, you've got a couple of weeks to get some good work in and to have a good feeling around the changing rooms and the training ground is good. Now, loan signing uh, Loic Remy got both the goals, didn't he? How good has he been since his arrival? He really had some quality, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, undeniably. He's uh, fantastic in training, as everyone's seen on uh, on a Saturday as well. He's got all the attributes and he's hungry, so it's a great combination. And, you know, I think uh, it was a fantastic signing. Nine of your squad, including him, are from France. I've always wanted to ask you this. What language does everyone speak in the, in the dressing room? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you all get on, but uh, it must be difficult at times. Most of the lads try and speak English, um, obviously, when, when they're amongst themselves and that. Yeah, they, they go back to their native tongue. But generally, yeah, you know, the lads try and keep English just for the benefit of uh, all the other lads. So, no, it's, it's fine. It's, people have asked before, you know, is there any clicks formed, this or the other. But to be honest, they're, they're all good lads and uh, we, we do have good banter around the changing rooms. Mike, you've obviously worked for a number of different managers. How, how does Alan Pardew compare? What sort of style does he have as a manager is, and how much of a coach is he? Yeah, no, he is. He, he is quite hands-on. He likes to come out and take training and uh, get his tactical points across. He's very thorough with um, looking at the analysis of past games and looking forward to uh, our next game. We get a lot of stats. We've got a lot, a lot of GPS. With you know, he works closely with the sports science part of the management team. And uh, yeah, he is uh, hands-on and he just keeps things basic and simple. And you know, that's how football should be played. What kind of relationship is there with him and the players, Mike? Is there, is there a constant dialogue? Is there a, a suitable distance? How does that work on a day-to-day basis? 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, certain managers, they've got their own techniques and they like to integrate themselves a certain amount, but, you know, keep a relative amount of distance. It's just getting the balance. And I think that's what the gaffer here strives for. Um, we can have a bit of banter in the meetings and have a laugh. And, you know, we have team bonding sessions away from here, paintballing and things like that, you know, and he fully supports them. But then, yeah, on uh, on the more practical part of it, the tactical and discipline part, he can put his foot down and, and make sure that people will abide by the rules. Mike, you've always had to wait for opportunity a little bit this season. How, how frustrating has that been? And how, how does he deal with that in terms of leaving players out? It's very frustrating personally. I think um, any player will tell you it's uh, difficult when you're not playing, but you know you need to add it to your your personal goals to get back in the team and to make uh, an, more of an effort and to put your case across on the training ground. And yeah, I think it is difficult for the manager, you know, especially we've got a um, full fit squad at the minute, so he is having to make certain decisions. And you know, I'm sure that's difficult um, for some of the players to take, but we're all professionals. We've all been around the game long enough to know that's part and parcel. And you've just got to keep working hard. And if you don't, you know, it'll only hinder your own career. Mike, one question we're asking everyone today on the on the show. I mean, you've played professionally now for 12 years. If you could thank one person in football uh, throughout your career, uh, who would it be? That's a difficult one because there's been a lot of people, you know, that's contributed to where I am today. But, you know, I'd like to probably personally point out Dean Austin. He was at Watford when I was at Wickham and I was at Wickham for four or five years. And it's a very tough league to play in. And um, he was the, the guy that came and watched me quite a number of times and uh, took the chance on taking me to Watford. And, um, you know, that's where I feel as though I was able to get the platform in the championship to prove myself and then to push on and ultimately play in the Premier League. And just uh, finally, a look at the weekend, uh, Mike, you host Liverpool, of course, in that lunchtime kickoff. Now, I don't know if you are aware, but the last time this fixture was goalless was 1974. There have been those four threes, those thrillers, not necessarily a defender's kind of game, this one, but should be fun to play in. No, oh, yeah. I mean, it should be... Uh, fantastic game for the neutral like you say but they're a fantastic team and I have worked with Brendan Rodgers as well and I've got a lot of respect for him he's a fantastic manager and a, a fantastic man and yeah there have been plenty of classics in the past but hopefully uh, we'll be on the right side of the is that classic uh, this weekend Mike thanks uh, very much indeed for your time and, uh, and good luck at the weekend for your sake I hope there aren't too many goals yeah thank you very much <laughs> yeah those 4-3 matches in 96 and 97 Alan I just wondered that famous iconic image of Kevin Keegan slumped over the advertising hoarding does that sum up management for you is that how it feels well I, I think that um, when I went into management I'd, I'd always try to have the same situation think it too high and think it too low and I see Paolo Di Canio sliding along the touchline and everything going and then you know in his final game against Sunderland on the floor and you can't let the players really see that you have to try and keep an even kill but I think Kevin on, on that occasion just let it all out and you could just see uh, the disappointment on, on his body language but I think body language of a manager is very important but it can be misunderstood so you know when you don't jump up and down the fans the press they don't think that you're passionate enough some managers jump up and down and it's just all for show so body language is, is a really important and I always remember Arsene Wenger saying that you know if I'm running up and down and shaking my heads and getting all involved 
How can I expect the players to be calm when they're trying to carry out their duties? But even he's lost it on, on quite <laughs> yeah. a few occasions, hasn't he? To sum up what you're saying, the three words sum up football management, you can't win. Well, whatever you do, you can't win. You're either too out of control, not passionate enough, the fans are never happy. It's results that matter at the end of it all as well. Newcastle versus Liverpool, of course, as we were saying, one of the standout fixtures of the weekend. That's the lunchtime kickoff on Saturday. Let's take a look at the rest. Um, Stoke West Brom, Swansea, Sunderland, Arsenal, Norwich, Chelsea, Cardiff, Everton, Hull and Manchester United, Southampton at the three o'clock kickoffs on Saturday. And then West Ham against Manchester City at 5.30. Sunday, the uh, 20th, Aston Villa against Spurs and then following up on the Monday Crystal Palace against Fulham what stands out for you there Alan amongst those fixtures? <laughs> well I think Man City going to West Ham because their away record is, is dreadful really and their performances and West Ham after that fantastic result it's that Monday night clash though because that is a big one for, for both managers both teams you can't afford to lose that one and uh, where are you this weekend Jason? I'm going to Manchester United against Southampton on, on Saturday which I'm very much looking forward to to see Southampton to see Pochettino and how he organises his team I've been very impressed by him the sort of high pressing game he's playing the sort of high energy he's got in that team the sort of youthfulness of it as well and Manchester United again you know, going back to our earlier discussion we're not quite sure which way it's heading at the moment for them so it could be quite a nervy afternoon uh, so that's the game I've, I've chosen to go to Right before we go it's become a, a tradition um, I want some predictions from you both and remember these are in the form of one word yes or no answers no time to justify just time to answer the questions so um, Alan we're going to start with you will the lunchtime Newcastle against Liverpool match treat us to a very optimistic five or more goals Yes Goodness me, I was right. I wasn't <laughs> expecting you to say that. Uh, Jason, can you Sunderland manager Gus Poyet get off to a winning start at Swansea? No. Alan, will Romelu Lukaku score once again for Roberto Martinez's Everton at home to Hull? Yes. Alan's been very positive mm-hmm. today, isn't he? Jason, can Pochettino's miserly defence keep out Adnan Yanisai and co at Old Trafford? Yes. Alan, can West Ham's Big Sam build on the win at Spurs with another three points against Manchester City? No. No from you. And finally to Jason, who's going to come out on top between the under-pressure Ian Holloway and Martin Yoll at uh, Sellers Park on Monday night? Draw. Draw, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> that wasn't actually a yes or no question, was it, the final one? But Jason did well to react. Um, why don't you tweet us your weekend predictions as well at Barclays Footy uh, with the hashtag YouAreFootball. And that's just about it from uh, this week's Manager's Special. My thanks to Alan Kirbishley and the Telegraph's Jason Burt. Before we go, have a try at this week's trivia team. Sunderland have drawn one and lost the rest of their matches so far this season but can you name the only team in Barclays Premier League history who's gained just a single point from their first seven matches and still avoided relegation if you think you know the answer tweet it to at Barclays Footy or post it on the Barclays Football Facebook page and we'll reveal the answers on the site later in the week if you have any views on the weekend's football tweet us using the hashtag YouAreFootball and we'll read out the best ones in next week's show we'll be back next Tuesday where we'll be analysing all of the weekend's results And we'll be speaking to the top flight super scout who discovered Gaza. All will be revealed. But until then, from Alan Kirbishley, Jason Burt and me, Dave Farrer, goodbye. You've been listening to the official podcast of the Barclays Premier League, brought to you by Barclays.